If you have your copy of Scripture this morning, we're in the book of Acts, book of Acts chapter 11 this morning, Acts chapter 11. If you don't know where that's at, it's in the New Testament, so the back portion of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, fifth book of the Bible, of the New Testament, Acts chapter 11. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 30 of Acts chapter 11. Verses 19 through 30 of Acts chapter 11. We've been tracing through the book of Acts and uh, just kind of using that for a launching pad to see what uh, the scripture has to say of the establishment of the church in the book of Acts. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I believe we see in this passage of Scripture and in these verses what can be clearly laid out for us as a model church. A model church, and I've entitled this message, A Model Church for the Modern World. A Model Church for the Modern World. And what I want to do uh, this morning is, is notice several things from this passage of Scripture that I believe lends itself and speaks to this idea of a model church for the modern world. The first thing that we notice really is the birth of a church in this passage of Scripture. In today's age, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a part of what our church is, there's a lot of talk about planting new churches and starting new churches. And to be very honest with you, new churches 
need to be planted and need to be started. There are indeed places in America and abroad where there is not a significant presence of a Bible-believing church. Now, we know that's not the case here in Washington, Illinois. In fact, here in our town, there are several Bible-believing churches that preach the Word of God every single Sunday. Uh, We're glad that you chose to be here with us this morning. Out of all the churches that you could have went to this morning, you chose to come here, and we're thankful that you are here. But we're not the only Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church in Washington, Illinois. There are others here. And we know that. Some of the issue comes for us today is when a group of people says, well, we don't like the way that that church does church or the way you do church, so we're just going to do church differently and we're going to start our own church. The problem with that philosophy of starting a church because we don't like how someone else does church is that we don't really find that in Scripture anywhere. What we have here in these verses are some Hellenistic Jews, Christians, Hellenistic Jewish Christians, who are obviously influenced by the ministry of Stephen and of Philip before being um, kicked out of where they were at, before being kicked out of Jerusalem. And uh, they made their way further and further into Gentile lands, the scripture tells us. And their preaching was initially to the Jews, but soon it would be to non-Jews. And wherever they went, they took the gospel. And where they went was to the lands that had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the focus of this passage is on the church at Antioch, where the gospel is proclaimed by faithful believers. There are a few things that we must take notice of when we look at the birth of this church or this church plant, if you will. And as we look at these things, let us understand that the founding of this church is not attributed to man, but it's attributed to the Lord. Whereas we read in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. One of the first things that we notice is that lay leaders started the church. Lay leaders started the church. And what we mean by lay leaders is just the kind of the normal, everyday person, not a professional pastor, uh, just a lay person like you. Just normal person. It's not your job to, you didn't go to school to be a pastor and you didn't go to school to study the scriptures. Just a normal Christian believer. Lay leaders started the church. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a trained pastor because that's my job and I'd be without a job if a church didn't want a pastor. Um, And there's nothing wrong with a trained pastor starting a church plant. In fact, often that is what we see happen. However, in this case, this church at Antioch was started by ordinary people that were proclaiming the word of God. They started by first proclaiming the gospel only to Jews, but soon they were proclaiming the gospel to everyone. And they were not just proclaiming the Christ, but as verse 20 states, they were proclaiming the Lord Jesus. And wherever they landed and wherever they went, they shared the gospel. They shared about the Lord Jesus. Listen, it is clear that the gospel is for the whole world. It may have begun with the Jews, but God in his mercy brought the gospel also 
to the Gentiles. And furthermore, we can't use the excuse that we're not a pastor, so we can't really be proclaiming the gospel, and we're not properly trained, and we don't really know how to share the gospel. We really can't use that excuse because the call is that you and I would share the gospel. And the birth of this early church started from ordinary followers of Christ proclaiming the Lord Jesus. That's how the church started. However, the lay leader started the church. We must notice that ultimately this church, as we alluded to just a second ago, this church was born by the hand of the Lord, the scripture says. It was born by the hand of the Lord. By God's sovereign control, he birthed the church at Antioch into existence. God overruled all of the trials and the opposition that was taking place, and he birthed the church. There was persecution, but that didn't stop God. That didn't stop what God had planned. Believers were fleeing for their lives, and guess what? There could have been discouragement, and there could have been unbelief, and there could have been denial, and there could have been a failure to witness because they were fleeing for being believers. Believers could have said, it's not worth losing everything to follow Jesus. Why would I want to lose everything I know and everything I have? I mean, the church at this point is in its infancy. It's just started. But God overruled all of that. And he gave them special grace to endure all that was set before them and to go forth and triumphantly proclaim the gospel in the name of the Lord Jesus. Antioch was not some nice little city where everything was just so great. It's just so great to be in Antioch. Antioch is most known for the worship of Daphne. There was a temple that stood five miles outside of the town in a grove and Apollos' famous pursuit of Daphne was reenacted there on a night and day basis by the men of the city and the priestesses who were ritual prostitutes. This is what they did. This was a depraved city filled with sensuality and immorality, but God overruled and the gospel went forth. God overruled and he stirred common ordinary believers to preach Christ, despite all of their trials, despite all of their opposition, and God caused the church to be born by his sovereign plan. His control, his power, his hand was with them. And what was the result? We see the result right here. The church gets started. What does it say? And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And on this day, we see the birth of a church, and it was birthed by the sovereignty of God and by the obedience of His people. God was sovereign to give grace to the believers that were there, and they were obedient to proclaim the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so often, churches start not by the sovereignty of God and obedience of His people, but far too often, churches start by the disobedience of His people to the proclamation of what God would have us do. People get mad about something. People don't like something. People get upset about something. And so they say, well, I'm just going to go start my own little church. That's not obedience to God. 
That's not how a church should start. Or they just don't like how someone else does church, so we're going to do it our own way. Whether we want to start a new church or breathe new life into an old church, like our church, it should be done because God is sovereign and moving in His people. It should be done because we are being obedient to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to breathe new life in the First Baptist Church of Washington? Be obedient to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And new life will be breathed into our church. Secondly, not only do we see the birth of a church, Secondly, we see the encouragement towards a new church. The encouragement towards a new church. You know, sometimes a new church starts up and and they're left to themselves to figure everything out. Sometimes the thought is, well, they started the church, so they should know how to do everything and they should know what they're doing. and, And otherwise, why would they start this church? But as we see here with the church at Antioch, this was not the case in reality We have a model right here in the scripture for how to start a church, for planning a church. It's right here in the scripture for us in these verses. And one of the first things that we notice in in the encouragement towards a new church is this, that, that the mother church heard the news of conversions. Did you see that? It said when news reached Jerusalem. The mother church heard the news of conversions. News reached the church at Jerusalem about how the believers that were scattered had been sharing the gospel and people were being converted. Remember that the apostles were still in Jerusalem and Jerusalem would have still been considered the main church or the mother church because it was where the church had originated. Any church that was started would have looked to Jerusalem, to the church at Jerusalem, for some leadership. And we saw the same thing when there was conversions in Samaria. What happened? The Jerusalem church sent some leadership down there to investigate things. The church at Jerusalem wanted to help new churches. And we see this in what Barnabas did. Barnabas goes to provide ministerial help, to give encouragement, and as we will see, to teach them. Let me say this is the way it should be. We should rejoice when the gospel goes forth. We should rejoice when we see the gospel go forth and a church start because the gospel has gone forth and people receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should cause you and I to rejoice. Not only should it cause us as a church to rejoice when they see that, but it should cause us to lend aid to the starting of that church. It should cause us to go, oh, we see that God's working over here in this area and that people came to know the Lord and this church was started because of that and therefore we want to lend aid. We want to help that church. That's what we see happening here. It's a model. The mother church heard the news of conversions and then what do they do? A missionary is commissioned to go. A missionary is commissioned to go. Notice that the church at Jerusalem does not say, well, good for that church in Antioch. They must be doing something right. 
Good for them. People are coming to Christ. They must be doing something differently than we're doing. Great for them. Instead, they take one of their own and they commission him to go. The focus is on the new church and helping the new church. Now let's notice a few things about Barnabas here because Barnabas is the man that's commissioned to go. And as, as he goes to this church at Antioch, first notice that his ministry is one of exhortation. Well, what does that even mean? What does, you ever hear that word exhortation? You're like, what does that mean? Or like if we're trying to talk like old time, like I'm going to exhort you, brother. What, I mean, what does that mean to exhort someone? It is to earnestly support or to encourage a response or action. That's what it means to earnestly support or to encourage a response or action. And so we have Barnabas going to Antioch and he gives them a very purposeful message. And what does he say? He says to them, remain faithful, remain faithful. So, so be loyal, be constant and steadfast and persevering to the Lord with, with this steadfast purpose. I just want us to, to understand that Barnabas is encouraging them uh, in, in, in what he's encouraging them to do because I believe we need the same encouragement. He's saying to the church at Antioch, church, stay firm in your association with the Lord and do not waver from it. And I think Barnabas would say the same thing even to establish church. If, if he came to us today, he would say, be, be faithful in what you're doing. He would say, First Baptist, stay firm in your association with the Lord and do not ever waver from it all of of you who are in uh, all, all of your thoughts and all your volition and all of your emotion and your knowledge all of that should be determined and directed towards the Lord what an encouragement by Barnabas to this new church giving them encouragement next notice it talks about Barnabas' character Look at what Luke says about Barnabas. He says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. What a great description. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind someone saying about me, you know, Josh, he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I wouldn't mind that. This idea of Barnabas being good means that he, is, he, he has desirable or positive qualities. He was a man that was honorable, he was moral, he was upright, but then he's also full of the Holy Spirit, meaning he was aware of the Spirit's presence and power and was controlled and guided by the Holy Spirit and that he would have displayed the fruits of the Spirit as we find in Galatians chapter 5. And finally, it says he was full of faith, meaning he didn't just believe in the Lord, but he believed in the power of the Lord and in the purpose and that, and that everywhere uh, uh, that he went, he trusted in the Lord and whatever God willed to do, he had faith that God would do it. And so the church in Jerusalem hears the news and they send Barnabas and Barnabas goes and encourages the church. And, and what happens? What happens is Barnabas goes and he gives encouragement to the church. Did you notice what happened to that church? The church grows even more. The scriptures say, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so the church grows even more. Now, did the church grow because of Barnabas? I mean, we could read that and go, oh, well, look at, man, that Barnabas, he's, he must be a cool, hip pastor. He must, like, wear skinny jeans and cool shirts and stuff. 
And, and that's why that church grew. By the way, you'll never see me in a pair of skinny jeans. I, I tried to pair on once. It was not good. But anyway, um, the church didn't grow because of Barnabas. Was Barnabas obedient? Yeah, he, he was obedient, but he was a tool used by the Lord. Yes, when it says great many people were added to the Lord, those uh, words were added is the verb form, and it is passive, implying that it is a divine action and a continuation from verse 21. The reason the church grew was because the Lord's hand was with them. Church, the Lord is both the subject and the object, both the source and the goal of evangelism. When we grasp that, when we fully understand that, 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 that he is the beginning and the end of evangelism, when we fully understand it, we realize how self-centered and how self-confident our concepts of evangelism seem to be. And our concepts of missions and our concepts of church planning and our concepts of church growth. We realize that they're really all uh, dependent upon our Self. And the only response that we should have when we when we recognize that that the Lord is the beginning and the end of evangelism, when we realize that He is the subject and the object, when we realize that He is the source and the goal of evangelism, the only response that we should have is one of repentance. For thinking for some reason. It was all dependent upon us. Because it's not. Furthermore, our church or any other church, for that matter, will grow in size when ultimately the church experiences growth in spiritual maturity and obedience. Not with a large outreach program. Not with doing cool awesome things not because we put it in a strobe light and have a disco ball or something like that that's not what causes a church to grow sure you may grow in number but when the people are mature and decide that they will be obedient to the call of christ the church grows it starts and ends with the lord and with our obedience to him any church will grow when the believers in the church faithfully share the gospel. And when the church faithfully shares the gospel. And when the people faithfully shares the gospel. And they show an interest to see converts in other places. And when the leadership demonstrates godly character. The church will grow. But check this out. The growth of the church. Proved to be too much for Barnabas. He knew his limitations. He decided to go get Saul, right? And I, I, wonder, um, I wonder how Barnabas ended up coming to the conclusion that he needed help. I wonder if he laid there one evening and he was like, I've done seven baptisms, shared the gospel numerous times. I've taught a ton of Bible studies. I need some help. I can't keep doing this. I can't keep this up. And then he thought of Saul. And I wonder how that worked out. Who knows what happened? But what we do know is that he realized he needed help. And the church would get some training if he went and got help. 
So let's look at that. Let's look at, so, so we've seen this kind of the birth of this church. We've seen the encouragement from, from the mother church towards this new church. Now let's look at the training of the church. The training of the church. Barnabas knew that he could not do it all alone. He would need some help in order to train this church. And when he and Paul had last seen each other, it had been roughly eight to ten years. Remember, the church in Jerusalem had sent Paul, Saul, to Tarsus for his own safety. And that is where uh, he had remained. And, and now what is interesting is apparently Barnabas knew that Saul, was, uh, where he was, and he knew that he was the man for the job, but it says he had to search for him. And when it says he looked for Saul, it means that uh, in the Greek, it means that he was searching in a systematic way because Saul was a busy man preaching Christ throughout Syria, uh, throughout Syria and Cilicia. And so he was not easy to find. However, Barnabas kept looking. And honestly, this is a great lesson for any church that is looking for help and even um, building a church staff. Don't just give up searching and just Keep looking until you find God's man. Also, I want us to notice this beautiful relationship between Barnabas and, and Saul. Barnabas was older, more respected, and in many ways more experienced than Saul was. Yet he still asked him to help in Antioch. And later they would start a missionary journey together. And Saul, who's Paul, began to play a greater role than Barnabas did. And when they started, it was always Barnabas and Saul, but soon it became Paul and Barnabas. And it would stay that way to the end. Barnabas and Paul went to this heathen Antioch, and they would be used by the Holy Spirit to train this church. Notice how their training went. It says that, it, we notice that they met yearly, so they met consistently. Reread that for a year. Barnabas and Paul met with the church. The church was being trained by Paul and Barnabas, and there are some things here that I believe are self-explanatory. First, they came together to be taught about the Lord, to know more about his death, his resurrection, his teaching, and his instruction. Listen, this was not the Antioch Country Club. This was not the, uh, this, this was the Antioch church and they gathered to celebrate the Lord and to learn of him. This was what church was for. We don't gather even today. We don't gather in church to celebrate ourselves. We don't gather together to celebrate whatever false idol of the day might be apparent to us. This day is called the Lord's Day. For a reason, we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather to celebrate Him and to glorify Him and to learn about Him. We don't gather to celebrate ourselves or anything else. But this day is to be focused and centered and be all about the Lord. Not about us, but Him. Secondly, notice that many people were taught, it says, they were, they were not just a few here and a few there, but the believers were hungry to hear the word, to learn more about the truth. And many of them came to be taught. 
We gather to be taught. We gather to know more. Sometimes it is unfortunate that we come with a plethora of excuses as to why we can't gather together as Christians. But they hungered for truth. They wanted to know what the Word of God said. Thirdly, they were consistent. Now, I know that we don't have anything saying that they met once a week or twice a week, but we do know that for a full year they met. And I'd have my doubt that they spent very little time together. They spent a great deal of time together talking more about Christ, learning more about Christ, especially when we consider this next point. That they came together and they learned on a consistent basis. Let me ask you, is there anything that prevents you from meeting together with other believers consistently to learn the truth? Is there anything that stops you? It's like, well, I just want to sleep in. I don't want to get up on Sundays. You know what? Some Sundays I don't want to get up. Just being honest. There are some Sundays. I didn't want to get up this morning. I ran with Sean last night, training for a marathon. I ran 18 miles. I got home at almost 9 p.m., right? I did not want to get up. I was like, my body is stiff. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'll probably fall over before I even get to the podium this morning. If I got up, I'm here. Is there anything that keeps you from being here? They met consistently, so we've seen this training for the church where, where they come together and they're taught the truth. But then we have this. We have this uh, idea that they had a powerful testimony. I don't know if you noticed it or not. It's kind of tucked away there in this passage of Scripture as we're reading it. But it says there for us in verse 26, it says, And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Christians. You know why we call ourselves Christians? It's traced right back to here. Christians. Now that, that may not mean much when we read it. However, it should mean a great deal. They must have taught about Christ so much and had made sure that the converts knew the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They must have been sharing the truth of Christ with all those around them, so much so that people said, gave them the name Christians. Luke has so far in the book of Acts called them disciples. He's called them saints. He's called them brethren. He's called them believers. He's called them those that are being saved. He's called them people of the way, but he's never called them Christians. But now the unbelieving public in Antioch, who were famous for their wit and their nicknaming skill, started calling them Christians. The last three letters of Christian are the letters I-A-N. That Latin suffix means belonging to the party of. So in this case, they were saying that these people were belonging to the party of Christ. The name Christ is supposed to show the identification of someone. The name Christian is to show that we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Furthermore, Christian is a mix of Latin and Greek. 
And this term becomes very significant because even though it was used in a way to make fun of or even insult someone that was a believer, believers began to wear it proudly because they are now no more Jews and they are now no more Gentiles, but they are Christian. What a powerful testimony test today. Especially when the word Christian has lost a great deal of significance and seemingly no longer means belonging to Christ. It is no longer a symbol of one who has turned from sin and trusted Jesus Christ to receive salvation by the grace of God. Many people who have never truly been born again consider themselves a Christian simply because they say, well, I'm not a pagan, so I must be a Christian. After all, they could belong to a church. They could go to a service at least some of the time. They could even give money to the church. But it takes more than that for a sinner to become a child of God. It takes faith. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins on the cross and rose again. The believers in the early church suffered because they were Christians. And yet we know little of suffering. Oh, that Christians would once again have a powerful testimony. Oh, that we would have a testimony that people would look at us and say that that person is a Christian. That we would walk around sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And people would recognize that there's something different about us. That we're no longer like the rest of the world because we are a Christian. Because we belong to Christ. We have seen the birth of the church we have seen the encouragement towards this church we've seen some of this this uh, idea in the church where they had training and now let's see the ministry of the church the ministry of the church this little baby church just started has ministry we read that some prophets came down from Jerusalem we don't know what caused them to come down we don't know if they had an invitation we know very little as to why they're there we just know that some prophets came to Antioch and we know this that a prophecy of famine is delivered this guy Agabus, so Agabus, one of the prophets, said that there's going to be a great famine. Now, to be clear, this was uh, not that Agabus was super smart and he had, uh, he had to use some sort of logic to figure out that there was going to be a famine. Scripture says that he prophesied that there would be this famine, meaning that the Holy Spirit gave him special insight to know this famine was coming. And history tells us that it indeed did come during the reign of Claudius Caesar, which was A.D. 41 to 54. However, the focus here is not on the famine. But the focus is on the response to the prophecy of the famine. So, this guy comes down, he prophesies, there's going to be a famine. And what does the church do? What does this little baby church do? They say, oh, 
we can't do nothing about that because we just started and we're a church plant. We don't really, we don't know what we're going to be able to do. What do they do? We read here that they share, the church shares its resources. Now we need to take notice here. Because they had just barely established when Agabus gives this prophecy. And what does it say they did? This young, barely established church. What they do? It said, everyone according to their ability sent relief to their brothers in Judea and they did so by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This baby church just established is now launching a mission project. They're now helping the very church that helped them. Now notice their decision was not like, hey, let's do this, and then they do nothing about it. Like, hey, you know what would be a good idea if we could, let's have a meeting, let's form a committee, and let's have a, let's have a Jerusalem committee to see if we should gather an offering up or not. And then after we formed the committee, oh, we decided to probably gather an offering, but now we're not going to gather an offering because, well, now it's too late and the famine's over. They, they didn't do that. They just gave according to their ability. Now, Karl Marx was not a Christian, obviously. But he said, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. And I wonder, so often, folks read Scripture and they get an idea from it. I can't help but wonder if he knew of these verses. You know, whatever our political and economic conviction may be, the biblical principle is that on one hand you have ability to meet a need. And on the other hand you have a need. And somehow you bring them together. And the need is met by ability. That's the physical that's the biblical principle. I have ability. Here's a need. Bring them together. That's the biblical principle. These characteristics should be central in the church. There should never be those in the body of Christ that go when needs are met. Let me tell you that what is what is absolutely mind-blowing to stop and think about. The Jerusalem church, the very church that had the Jews upset with Peter. Remember that? We just looked at that. The Jews were upset with Peter. Why? Because Peter went and ate with Gentiles, then sent Barnabas to Antioch, a Gentile church. And now this Gentile church sends Barnabas with Saul back to Jerusalem with famine relief. Isn't that cool? You have Jews helping Gentiles and Gentiles helping Jews. You know why? Why are they doing that? Because they are no longer Jews and Gentiles. Because they are Christians. They are belonging to Christ. They're belonging to Christ. Listen, church, if you're here and you know Christ as your Savior, you're not, you're not Jew or Gentile. You're not 
American or, or Pakistani or whatever. You're a Christian. You belong to Christ. And it doesn't matter if another Christian is from way over here or way over there or from some area that you don't like. It doesn't matter. You're a Christian. And you help and you give and you say, I have ability and here is a need. I need to meet that need. And I know, folks, I know people don't like it when you talk about money, but I'm going to talk about money just for a second. Some of you have great ability. Great ability to meet great need. But if you don't bring the two together, you're not going to meet needs. You're not going to meet needs. And if you're stingy and you're like, oh, I don't know. I might not be able to go out to eat this month. You're not going to meet needs, church. You're not going to meet needs. It's not going to happen. And if you, if you sit back and, well, I, I don't think I should tithe. Really? And we're family, right? I love you, church. I hope you love me. I've heard you tell stories about things that this church has done for you. You're really going to think I should be stingy and not give to the church so that they can meet great needs. I mean, should that really be our attitude? Should it? Some of you have great ability far greater than others to meet great needs. That's what Christians do. Because you are a Christian belonging to Christ. But check this out. Not only does this little itty bitty just established church go, well, we need to, we need to meet needs. What do they do? Not only do they share their resources, the church shares its ministers. So we read that Barnabas and Saul are the ones taking the offering. And Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul taking the offering to the Jerusalem church. For me, I go, what? Because what are Barnabas and Saul doing? They're the main teachers in the church. Barnabas and Saul, so, so not only did they share their resources, but they share their ministers. And sometimes the church has this tendency to not want to share their minister, to not want their minister to help other churches or to help other ministries. You know, sometimes like, well, maybe they're going to try to steal our pastor or something like that. But how refreshing it is to see the church in Antioch sharing all they had. Sharing that what the resources that they have saying, we have need and we have ability. Let's have our ability meet the need. A side note, this is the first time we see the word elder in the scripture ever mentioned as a part of the church community. The word elder appears 66 times in the New Testament and 18 of them are in the book of Acts. 
Elders were responsible to have spiritual oversight of the ministry. An elder and a bishop are equivalent titles. They're, they're the same thing. And the elders were the pastors of the flock, assisted by the deacons. And the qualifications for both of them can be found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But what we, what we have is a church that is engaging in mission, instruction, discipleship, and the caring for others in need. What we have is this picture of a model church. What we've seen is how one church came to the aid of another. And today, many churches are only interested in their own ministry or using their own facilities and their own resources and their own ministers for their own efforts. And it is sad to see churches with large budgets give so little to missions or do very little for other believing communities in their own area that need help. Church, we have to be careful that in our pursuit of doing ministry, we don't neglect others that may desperately need our help. In our world where everyone is looking out for number one, we need to be selfless. And that will be a testimony to the world. And a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I say this morning, this is a model church for a modern world. In a world where our focus wants to be everywhere than where it needs to be. And when we, when we think the answers to our problems are, are bigger or better or we need to understand to, to do more in this area or that area. It's not the answer. I ask you. This morning, are we a proper model of a church? I ask you this morning, is First Baptist Church a proper model of a church? Is God moving here? Is God moving in our people because we're obedient to the proclamation of the word of God? If you say, no, I don't see that happening, then I say to you, it's time to start being obedient because we've seen how that grows a church. Are you a part of the church and not just a part in attendance, but are you here encouraging others in their walk with the Lord and encouraging others in general? Or do you complain about things that don't really need to be complained about? And if you say, no, that, I'm not very encouraging. I say to you, it's time to start. Are you here on a consistent basis, learning and growing in the Lord and displaying a powerful testimony to those that are around you because you want to know the truth of the word of God and it's going to take something crazy to keep you out of growing together with other believers? And if your answer is no, that's not me then I say to you, it's time to start. Are you ready to be involved in ministry, not just by giving your money and doing good, but by giving yourself? Are you sharing what you have and encouraging our church to share what we have, to even give sometimes until it hurts? Are you encouraged and do you look and say, I have great ability to meet great need and our church has great ability to meet great need do you encourage us to do that not just locally but to other churches around the state and around the globe are you willing to go 
no matter the cost. If not, it's time to start. So I ask you, are we a model church? I close with this. Alexander the Great once learned that in his army was a namesake. Another Alexander who was a notorious coward. Alexander the Great who conquered the world when he was just 23 years old called the soldier before him and he said, Is your name Alexander? And are you named for me? The trembling coward said, Yes, sir. My name is Alexander and I was named for you. The general said, Then either be brave or change your name. Fortunately, Christ doesn't say that to us. Fortunately, Christ doesn't say, Either you start following or change your name. But he does encourage strongly for us to be who we are. And who you are is belonging to him. Because you are a Christian. And so I say to you this morning, live out your calling in a faithful, obedient service to him. This morning we covered a lot of ground. And I'd ask this morning here in a minute, we're going to sing a song. And maybe you need some prayer. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you this morning. I'm going to be standing right down front. I'd love to spend a few moments in prayer with you if that's what you need. Maybe the Lord's spoken to you in some way. Maybe he's kind of worked on your heart this morning and, and, and you just need to come up and, and say something to me or, or, or say, I'm not understanding what's going on. I'd love to talk with you. Maybe this morning you'd say, I don't even know Christ and I'm not, we're not a model church and I'm not doing my part. And maybe you need to. Maybe you need to confess Christ this morning. Maybe you need a relationship with him. However the Lord's spoken to you this morning, I'd ask that you be willing to respond to him as we sing this song in just a moment. I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer. And as we sing, you be willing to come this morning. Let's pray.